Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on another Labor History Talks. Uh, the topic for the night will be the labor history of San Diego, making of a low-wage, high-rent town. First to speak will be Alex Wells, a fantastic history teller and regular contributor to the Labor History Talks. After Alex will be our main speaker, Avery Weir, a rank-and-file member of SEIU's Local 221 and the primary organizer for our Labor History Talks. Um, so without any further ado, Alex, please take it away. Thanks, Victor. Um, so I'm just going to talk for a couple of minutes um, with some stats, uh, just to give us kind of a picture of what we're looking at. Um, the top line number is that the cost of living in San Diego is 35% higher than the average for the country. Um, and a lot of that is because in San Diego, some of the most over um, overrepresented industries are those at the very top and the very bottom of the you know, economic ladder. So we have business and financial operations management um, on one end, you know, on the top. And then we have, you know, overrepresentation in food, food preparation and serving, um, you know, the service economy, low wage jobs. Um, and compared to the rest of the country, uh, San Diego jobs are underrepresented in the fields of transportation and material moving, office and administrative support and production, which you know, we could think of as middle-class jobs in the you know, traditional sense, both blue and white collar. So given that we have a, an economy that's so focused on, you know, tourism, uh, you know, service economy and, you know, extremely high rent, you know, uh, white collar financial oh you know, operations. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we have this huge hole in the middle of uh, where the job market should be. In terms of income, uh, you know, there are a variety of figures, uh, you know, Pay in San Diego is higher than it is in the country, not uh, not as much as by uh, you know other uh, economic disparities. Uh, for example, the mean hourly wage in San Diego is thirty one dollars per hour compared to twenty seven in the rest of the country. Median household income is eighty thousand dollars compared to sixty six thousand uh, dollars for the U.S. Um, likewise, income per capita is forty one thousand dollars compared to thirty four thousand dollars for the rest of the country, and uh, 12.8% of people in San Diego live in poverty, according to the government statistics, compared to 11.4% nationwide. Um, when it comes to the distribution of household income, the top 5% of earners in San Diego make 22% of all income, and the top 20% make 51% of all income in San Diego, compared to the bottom 40% who take home only 12% of all income. Um, in terms of rent, Median gross rent is $1,700 in San Diego compared to $1,100 for the rest of the country. The mean apartment rent is $2,600 compared to $1,200 for the rest of the country. Um, one of the biggest disparities compared to the nationwide averages uh, are in terms of house ownership. In San Diego, 47% sorry, in San Diego, 47 of units are owned by the occupant compared to 64% nationwide. So San Diego is disproportionately a city of renters compared to homeowners. The median uh, value of the uh, owner-occupied home in San Diego is $603,000 compared to $218,000. And you know, that's one of the major reasons why is the average unit is three times as expensive as the average unit nationwide. Um, homeowner costs with a mortgage are $2,600 per person in San Diego compared to $1,600 nationwide. Um, and then as far as unionization, um, San Diego is near the nationwide average, 13% uh, overall in San Diego compared to 11% nationwide. The uh, private sector unionization is exactly the same at 6% for both. 
And the biggest disparity in San Diego is that 46% of public sector workers are unionized compared to 35% nationwide. So the largest disparity is an overrepresentation in public sector unionization compared to the rest of the country. And that's all I had. So um, let's turn it over to Avery. Okay, oh. thanks, Alex. Yeah, I just did that. You can hear me, right? Yeah. Okay, thanks, Alex, for the introduction. And I'm gonna just give a history of San Diego and try to explain why it's a low wage city and a high rent city. Um, just, yeah, Alex gave us some great statistics. If you compare San similar cities, unlike just comparing to the rest of the country, you'll find it's much lower wage compared to say LA, San Francisco, Chicago. And you don't find San Diego very much in any books of poetry. But there is one poem out there about San Diego. In that town called San Diego, when the workers try to talk, the cops will smash them with a sap and tell them, take a walk. They throw them in a bullpen and they feed them rotten beans. And they call that law and order in that city. So it seems. That is from the Little Red Songbook of the early 20th century union, the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. And we'll come back later as to the story behind that poem. The political left is sometimes accused of, quote, social engineering. I think people have probably heard that term. It means the idea that you're trying to design a society from above instead of just letting it breathe and evolve naturally. But the conditions for profitable capitalism themselves have to be socially engineered. And San Diego's original ruling clique of boosters, city boosters, envisioned a land of sea and sun, free of unsightly industry and unruly unions, attracting tourists serviced by low-wage labor, and with landowners prospering by selling expensive housing to wealthy white retirees. That is, they had a vision of low-wage, high-rent San Diego, and they brought it about. How did they do that? Well, as we have discussed before, the United States has the world's highest gross national product per capita, but it's number 27 in life expectancy. The U.S. stands out among rich countries because it does not have free health care. It is relatively low wage compared to other countries with less vacation and sick time and a low unionization rate. And perhaps the most powerful reason for the lower standards of life for U.S. workers, despite the U.S.'s wealth, is our uniquely toxic history of slavery and racism. The huge U.S. working class weighed down by this history of racial oppression lowers standards within the global labor market. And within the U.S., the southern states where racial oppression has the worst history, unionization and wages are lowest, thus in turn pulling down standards within the U.S. labor market. Why does racial oppression do this? Racial oppression cheapens la labor costs through three means. One, a racially oppressed group is more desperate and unemployed so it can be paid less. So that's less money out to wages right there. Two, the lower pay of the oppressed workers then brings downward market pressure on all workers' wages. And three, 
racial separation and distrust makes it harder for workers to organize together. So it should be no surprise then that our San Diego elites successfully socially engineered low-wage, high-rent San Diego using class oppression with strong racial components. In effect, they made a northern city with some of the characteristics of a southern city. Now I'm going to try to just say broadly how that was accomplished. The first act of social engineering after the southwestern U.S. was forcibly taken in the Mexican-American War of 1846, the Native American population living in San Diego faced taxation without representation. And Antonio Garra was a Native leader who united some of the local San Diego tribes in 1851 in rebellion against this taxation without representation. But their defeat, with their defeat, the Native population could be eventually pushed onto our county's 18 remote reservations. First act of social engineering. When railroads first connected Southern California to the rest of the country, Los Angeles and San Diego both attracted investors mainly seeking to profit from buying and selling land. San Diego's population was less than 3,000 in 1880, but with the railroad, it grew to 40,000 by 1888. That year, the boom in housing properties collapsed, and then the population sunk way back down to 16,000. Well, roughly the same pattern happened in Los Angeles, but with a difference, because in LA, oil was discovered. So LA's population continued to grow, getting a big head start on San Diego because it had a major industry, not just land for houses. Of course, later they had the film industry. Meanwhile, San Diego's Chinese immigrant workers who actually built the railroad were eventually forced out by the anti-Chinese club. It was actually called that. There was a club called the Anti-Chinese Club in San Diego formed in 1885. And shamefully for the labor movement, San Diego's first ever strike included the demand for a pledge by the employer not to hire Chinese. After San Diego's real estate collapse, millionaire industrialist John D. Spreckles, you know, like the Spreckles Theater downtown, yeah. bought land across the city. He set up a bank to make loans, and he also bought the trolley lines and other local infrastructure. And by 1900, 10% of the city's property taxes came just from him. Freckles and his rival, San Diego's largest merchant, George Marston, you know, like the Marston House, if you've heard of that in Balboa Park. The two of them backed the Panama, California Exposition of 1915, which is kind of like a world's fair held in San Diego. And these landowners used that exposition to advertise San Diego as a tourist and retirement destination for people to come and be on the land that they own. Also, they used it to get the federal government to spend money benefiting San Diego with a naval base. Balboa Park is there because it was built to host this exposition. After the exposition, developer Oscar Cotton, he formed the San Diego California Club. And this club of local businessmen advertised San Diego to rich farmers and businessmen in the Midwest so that landowners could sell houses here and San Diego could build up its population. 
quote, to whom are we going to sell? Oscar Cotton asked the Chamber of Commerce. Shall we invite laborers? His answer was no, let's not invite laborers. The club got letters from people asking how they can move way up to remote San Diego. And Cotton instructed the club to identify so-called class one letter writers, which were those people who looked like they had the most wealth. The writers of class one letters were made honorary members of the San Diego California Club and targeted with special outreach. They used Balboa Park in their literature to market San Diego. What a beautiful place. The new settlers were disproportionately older, wealthier, and of course, almost entirely white. As our local Chamber of Commerce actually said, quote, in 1907, quote, Negro colonization is not to be encouraged. San Diego's rental market was not built for working class people to settle here. As late as 1940, 1940, 85% of landlords who wanted retirees, they refused to rent to families with children. If you had kids, you couldn't move into 85% of apartments in San Diego at that time. The San Diego California Club later became today's Convention and Visitors Bureau. Still around, we know that institution. By the 1920s, that bureau, along with the Chamber of Commerce and the Realty Board, effectively organized the city's developers, bankers, merchants, and industrialists into an unelected ruling class that set the policies of the elected government. And the same people still hold power today, both at City Hall and at the county. A city with less industry was cleaner and more attractive to wealthy retirees and tourists. It also had fewer unions. While the nation's 1930 strike wave built powerful industrial unions in the big cities, San Diego saw less action. Unions in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles redistributed wages to workers, raised our living standards, and became powerful political forces that could also help in the fight for affordable housing. A union power has decreased in those places over time, but over the decades, they forced their ruling classes to make a few concessions to the working class majority, but less so in San Diego. Those other cities, because they, had, they were larger and had more jobs, also attracted the massive migration of black sharecroppers out of the South from World War I to World War II. Black workers played a key role in building the unions back then, and later their children led the black freedom struggle of the 1960s, which outlawed housing discrimination for rent control and built big new unions of public sector workers in the 60s and 70s. And today, the black population forms another powerful pro-working class political presence alongside the unions in those cities. And that limits how far the local capitalist ruling class can go, even if a few people of color also end up joining the ruling class. Now, San Diego had black freedom struggles. It also had a brown power movement. But because it was too small to attract many from the great migration between the two wars, black and brown politics are a relatively weaker force here. In LA, for example, 9% of the population is black, 49% Latino, compared to five and 34% here. Every San Diego mayor has been white. 
San Diego only became a large city with World War II. The city's population began to take off in 1941. It grew by 50% in just one year. But the multiracial working class imported with the Navy is, of course, not allowed to unionize. And that was always part of why San Diego's booster ruling class tried so hard to woo the Navy to base itself here. As Abraham Schrage of the San Diego Union wrote back then, the Navy were, were, quote, of a high class, and they didn't include dangerous union, union radical types. As the Navy, also the Navy in the early 20th century was the U.S. military branch most led by rich Southerners. The admirals were rich Southerners who, as influential San Diegans, brought white supremacist policies into an already conservative city. So when the giant suburban housing complexes of Claremont and Allied Gardens, think about those, those are big areas, Claremont and Allied Gardens, they were built to accommodate the expanding military population and they were whites only. In the words of the president of Vulti Aircraft, which was the largest San Diego military contractor during World War II, quote, it is not the policy of this company to hire people other than the Caucasian race. So though San Diego's black population grew during the war, lack of opportunities meant that many didn't stay. Mexicans moved to Los Angeles and strengthened the dock workers and the cannery unions, which were strong up there, more than they settled in the even more segregated San Diego compared to LA. The Japanese population, which up and down the West Coast had high levels of unionization, militancy, and radicalism, had already been forced out due to internment at the start of the war. As a sickening side note, I have to just point out that the San Diego Chamber of Commerce in 1943 passed a resolution protesting, quote, the coddling of these Japanese in internment camps. I'd like to see some of those guys, see how they like an internment camp. According to the Fair Employment Practices Commission, San Diego in 1965 remained, quote, one of the most segregated areas in the country. And they blamed employment discrimination for this. Realtors also enforced housing segregation at that time by refusing to show people of color properties north of the 94 freeway. In 1963, the San Diego Realty Board met at the El Cortez Hotel downtown to oppose California's proposed Rumford Act, which was written to outlaw housing discrimination. The American Nazi Party rallied outside in support of the Realty Board. In the late 60s, there were still only about 100 black students at San Diego State. Racial barriers to employment in the building trades of San Diego persisted until 1972. In all of these ways, San Diego was built as a low-wage, high-rent city, a city where the working class was at an even bigger disadvantage than similar large northern cities. Now, let's see how San Diego's working class organized in these unfavorable conditions. So back to the IWW and the story I promised. In 1910, the IWW organized the Mexican streetcar drivers on the trolley that Spreckles owned. So in 1911, Spreckles pressured City Hall to deny the IWW their meeting space, which they did. And in response, the union 
started holding street corner speakouts on soapboxes downtown. So then the city banned public speaking downtown. So the union organized a free speech campaign, just like they had done in other cities. And what happened was thousands of members from outside San Diego rode on boxcars down to San Diego to test the new ban on free speech, speaking on soapboxes downtown. And they went to jail if necessary, and they often did. But unlike in other cities where its free speech fights established the union presence, the booster ruling class of San Diego, uniquely conservative, uniquely concerned about its image for retirees and tourists, and probably worse than average for the time in white supremacy, defeated the free speech struggle with violence. Police doled out regular beatings in jail. And in fact, at least two unionists were killed. One of them was 63-year-old Joseph Mikulasic, who was denied medical treatment and left in a jail cell after a beating. But there were likely others killed, as IWW members coming to town to protest often lived as hobos without families who would not know if they were missing. Spreckles, developers John and George Burnham, I've seen those names around on development projects, the Burnhams, and other wealthy San Diegans encouraged violent vigilantes who carried out anti-labor terror with total impunity. In just one incident, 400 armed and drunk vigilantes stopped an incoming train from Los Angeles, kidnapped 140 people on board, and tortured them over an 18-hour period at San Onofre before forcing them to leave the county. And here I just want to give a trigger warning. I'm going to have a two-word reference to sexual abuse. And if you mute or cover your ears in the next five to 10 seconds, it will be over. In another incident, Ben Reitman, partner of world-famous anarchist Emma Goldman, was driven to the county line and sexually tortured by a mob, which forced him to sing the national anthem. Other people were driven out to the same location. And today you see it on Highway 67 on the way to Ramona with the name Vigilante Road. I've driven on that. I've seen that many times. That's what it's there for, Vigilante Road. Writing of such actions, Spreckle's San Diego Union newspaper said, quote, if this be lawlessness, make the most of it. 100% behind it, they were when California's governor appointed Colonel Harris Weinstock to investigate human rights abuses in San Diego. Think about that. The California governor sent a colonel to investigate human rights abuses in San Diego. Weinstock, the colonel, he received death threats from vigilantes. The San Diego Tribune, which only many years later merged with the San Diego Union to form, to form today's UT, so the Tribune was a separate paper, they said of vigilante, vigilante attacks on free speech fighters, quote, hanging is none too good for them. They are waste material of creation and should be drained off in the sewer of oblivion to rot like any other excrement. Oh, my God. Geez, tell us how you really feel. Hmm. The IWW was forced entirely out of the city. In 1935, Harry Steinmetz, won election as president of the San Diego Labor Council. Steinmetz and his allies won significant gains in union membership, and they won some wage increases by democratizing labor council meetings, supporting unemployed workers, and campaigning for free school lunches, as well as supporting strikes. 
Steinmetz argued that for a strong labor movement, quote, the goals must be social. We must be the welders of a new and better social order, even of a new civilization based on production for use, competition of ideas, devotion to a classless society, and peace. But despite its successes, the Steinmetz leadership was forced out in 1939 as the national AFL attacked them as communists. The city boosters cheered and labor was defeated. In 1937, the great Guatemalan-born leftist union leader, Luisa Moreno, came to San Diego to spread the cannery workers union she had organized to our town. By opposing segregated working conditions against Mexican workers in the tuna canneries, she organized Local 64 at the Van Camp Seafood Company, and it gained the highest wages in the tuna packing industry. Moreno also spoke out when anti-Mexican violence hit San Diego in the Zoot Suit Riots of 1943. People know the Zoot Suit Riots from L.A., but when they happened in L.A., people started doing it in San Diego, too. In response to all of this, Van Camp and other tuna canners actually financed the Ku Klux Klan to harass and intimidate Moreno. And the San Diego Klan was led by a prominent Republican named Richard A. Floyd. When Luisa Moreno refused to answer questions before the California State Senate's Committee on Un-American Activities, the committee reported her refusal to the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Her pending application for citizenship was then denied, and the, the Encanto grandmother, as the San Diego Union called her in what they thought was an insult, was deported in 1950, yet another defeat for labor. In the 60s, the spirit of rebellion in the Black freedom, brown power, and anti-war movements spilled over into workplace rebellion as well in San Diego. Black and white San Diego garbage workers struck successfully for two weeks in 1969 to end discriminatory promotions and for better benefits for all. Multiracial machinists at defense contractor Roar, Roar in Chula Vista, people know that company, that year relied on student and community support for their strike victory, which took 63 days. In 1972, there were successful strikes at Electrodynamics and by taxi drivers, bakers, and construction workers, all in San Diego. Meanwhile, the United Auto Workers, teachers, postal clerks, farm workers, and government employees were working more closely together by joining in San Diego's 1971 march against the war in Vietnam. Cesar Chavez's farm workers, for their part, had spread their union to nine San Diego farms by 1975. So San Diego labor was finally on a roll in the 1970s. But defense cuts, downsizing, and automation turned that around starting in the 80s. The National Steel and Shipbuilding Company, NASCO, had a militant movement against workplace deaths and industries in the late 70s. But they had their last successful strikes in 1981 and 1984. Massive layoffs then cut the workforce from 7,000 to 2,000. And the NASCO unions were gravely weakened through the 90s. The same nationally-based trend affected labor across the private sector, especially in San Diego. In this difficult time for labor, though, let us not forget that, Cal that county workers still managed our successful strike in 1994 
going out for not even a full day on the picket lines, we won wage increases of 8.5, 5, and 5% over three years. To conclude, today, there is a working class backlash against the one-sided class war against workers ever since the 80s. The recent October strike wave follows the red state rebellion teacher strikes, the 2019 LA teacher strikes, and the attempts to unionize Amazon. San Diego workers may not be immune to this mood. And San Diego's carefully engineered racial composition has changed away from the booster founder's old vision. San Diego, city and county, no longer has the Republican political domination that used to differentiate it from other large metro areas with higher wages, more unions. So some of the methods for maintaining low-wage, high-rent San Diego are breaking down. It is no longer a semi-Southern town, yet a more balanced playing field still isn't a level playing field. From Chicago to Los Angeles, some of the most important strikes of recent years took place against local Democratic Party mayors and Democratic Party school boards. And the backward slide of workers' living standards nationally continued under alternating presidencies of both parties since the 80s. But there's no better time for labor to move forward than when the arrangements of power are in flux, as they now are in San Diego. The booster elite built low-wage, high-rent San Diego by design and at our expense. As our local prepares for a 2022 with every single one of our contracts expiring, we can call all of the victims, the whole working class, to join us in a crusade for as long as it takes to end low-wage, high-rent San Diego and the power structures that benefit from it. That's it. Thank you.